The following sermon by Nelson Atwood was recorded at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. For more information, please visit their website at www.noblebaptist.org.au That's www.noblebaptist.org.au Some amazing words in that last song we were singing. You're my friend and you are my brother. And I'm glad we capitalized the B for that because I don't want us to ever think in terms of Christ in something that's derogatory or downputting. But he is our friend and he is a king. But those words, I love you more than any other, so much more than anything. Is that really the expression of your heart? Do you really love the Lord Jesus Christ with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength? And as I sang those words, it just kind of hit me. I thought, you know, I'm going to sing these words, but I'm going to sing them more as a prayer. That as I grow in my love for the Lord Jesus Christ, one day when I stand before Him, that love will really be all my heart, all my soul, all my strength, all my might will be in love with Him. I want you more than gold or silver. Only you can satisfy. There is no satisfaction in anything in this world other than what we find in Christ and Him alone, which rules out everything in this world. But when we see all the things that God has created, we see all that God has done, we look at the stars and we look at the depths of the oceans and the beauty in God's creation, all it does, it should tell us, don't look at me, look at God. Look at God because nothing that you see in me will satisfy. And it should point our eyes and our hearts upwards to the living God. What a wonderful Savior we serve, eh? Loving Father, again we come before you. And Father, those words we were singing, I love you more than any other. Father, I can only speak for myself, but I must confess that there are times when I don't. Father, I plead with you for all of us that the love that we have for other things would quickly strip away. And that you, the Lord Jesus Christ, would be the object of the wholeness of our love. That we would see and savor Christ. We would see the joy that you have in yourself as God. And we would be caught up in that joy. Father, make us, change us, break us down, and make us into a people who are absolutely in love with you. That our souls would be filled up with God. We would put aside the other stuff that so easily and so quickly crowds you out and pushes you aside. Father, we long for the day when faith will give way to sight and we will see the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Him we will see all the fullness and all the perfections of God in a manner that we are able to see and savor and enjoy and delight. Father, we ask You for help as we would look again at one of the attributes, one of the characteristics that the the scholars and the Scriptures use to somehow describe like a remote fleeting image that's blurry and fuzzy and grainy. It's just a a slight image of who you are. But Father, we long for the day when we will be able to spend all of eternity savoring and soaking up who you are. Father, we ask you for help. And we give thanks, O God, for our time together, our fellowship, the time we spend in singing. May, O God, the worship we have been enjoying for the last few moments, may it flow right through the next 40 minutes or so as we consider the Scriptures. May every heart in this room be turned upwards as we consider the greatness of who you are. May we flow forth in worship. And we ask you these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been looking at the attributes of God for the last couple of months now, maybe three or four months. We looked at how the Bible characters named God for his attributes throughout the history of the Bible, giving him names like Yahweh Yireh, which simply means the Lord will provide. But ultimately, really, the only way we can truly know God is through Jesus Christ. 
Christ came with a specific purpose in mind to explain and reveal God the Father to us. The apostles came after Christ and they explained and described his work to us. The theologians and scholars throughout history, theologians or not, have gathered and organized and categorized all that the Bible says about God to describe God as fully as possible. Theologians use what they call the attributes to help understand who God is and what God has done. The attributes of God and the essence of God are inseparable. God is not a compilation, we said before, of all the different parts that you can take apart and look at and put back together. God is simple in the sense that he is one being. The attributes are not in isolation each other. Rather, they form one single, continuous, unfolding description of God. And theologians, as we said before, divide those attributes, those characteristics, into two basic groups, incommunicable and communicable. And incommunicable attributes of God are those which have little or no sharing by God with his creatures. For example, God is eternal. We were created in soul and spirit to live eternally, but God has no beginning. There was no creation for God. He always is. That's all you can say. God is unchangeable. But we're saved and we're constantly in a state of change. We're growing, we're moving, we're shifting, we're changing. The entrance of time and space define change and movement. And that's how we are. But God is unchangeable. He stays the same. Uh, God is omnipresent. He is all the time, always, everywhere. You cannot escape from God no matter how far you go, no matter where you go. You and I are only present in one time and one space at, at one time. We, we can't be omnipresent. Then there's the, the communicable attributes, the things that can be shared by God among his creatures. For example, God is omniscient, but man will never be omniscient, but man can grow in knowledge. God is truth. We'll gain and understand something of truth. We'll learn, like we learned this morning, some of the truths of the gospel. God is wisdom. We'll gain and become somewhat wise to a greater or less degree, depending on the person. But God is the summation of wisdom. God is holy. We'll become, we'll be made holy over time, but never be holy to the same degree. His God is righteous. And we were talking this morning about how we receive the righteousness of Christ. And we will, in a sense, grow in righteousness. And our actions, our thinking, our speaking will become a little more righteous over time. But never as righteous as God is. I asked the question last time. I'm going to repeat it again. What's the point of examining all this? Why are we doing it? Henry Skugel, and I, I quoted that little section, that little book he wrote a tremendously difficult book, but he had some incredibly poignant and powerful things to say in that little book. It's called The Life of God and the Soul of Man. And basically he said, if we become what we love, so if we love sin, we'll become more sinful, but if we love God, we will become more like God because the Bible even says in Second Corinthians 3.18 that we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being changed into the same image from glory to glory just as from the Lord the Spirit. Meaning that as we worship God and love God and focus on God and study God and savor God and delight in God, we become more godly. We'll never become God. Don't make that assumption. That's, that's, that's a mistake. But we will become more godly. And that's why we're doing this. I mentioned last week, I mentioned, or three weeks ago, whatever it was now, I mentioned then that... Uh, I'm no smart person by any stretch of the imagination. I simply study through theology books and study my Bible and put it together. And I'm learning as much as I'm trying to teach. And I'm learning more because I, don't, I can't jam the five hours of study into 40 minutes. It's impossible. But I'm learning much. And there's no, nothing stopping anybody in this room to picking up a systematic theology and just working your way through it, looking up the text and, and just getting your head around it, writing some notes and gaining some knowledge. And hopefully what it will do... It won't end up in just head knowledge. It'll make you feel smarter than everybody else because you quickly learn you're not. But what it will do is cause you to stop and worship. And there have been more than once in my study working through this stuff, I've just stopped to worship because it's been so overwhelming to discover something about God that I just didn't know, didn't comprehend before. 
We looked last time, three weeks ago, at the uh, spirituality of God. And I want to look tonight at something that goes very closely with that. And this is the last of the incommunicable attributes of God. We'll look at the more communicable ones from here on out. But one of them is the invisibility of God. And Grudem, Wayne Grudem said, God's invisibility means that God's total essence, all of his spiritual being, will never be able to be seen by us, yet God still shows or reveals something of himself to us through visible created things. We'll never be able to understand and look at God the way that God can look at himself, if you like. Take your Bibles, please, and go to the book of Colossians, and you'll see right away where we're going to end up. But I want to just give you this text, and we'll come back to it at the very end. So Colossians 1, beginning at verse number 15, and we'll read down, or actually verse 13, we'll read down to the end of verse 23. Colossians 1, 13 to 23. And the Bible says this, it says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And then Paul, in verses 15 down to about 20, launches into what some have assumed to be an old New Testament hymn that the the New Testament believers sang as part of their worship. And this is how it goes. He is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he, it's Christ, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything... In everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister." God is the invisible God. He says it right there in verse number 15. Christ is the image of the invisible God. And God invisible cannot be seen by human eyes. In fact, the second commandment, the Ten Commandments, forbids every visible, graven, or manufactured image of God. The Bible says in Exodus 20 verse 4, You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the water under the earth. The Bible says that God is not able to be seen. Exodus 33 verse 20, he said, You cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. In John 1.18, John wrote and said, No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. He's the image of the invisible God. In John 6.46, John again said, Not that anyone has seen the Father, except the one who is from God, he has seen the Father. In 1 John 4, verse 12, John again writes, No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. In 1 Timothy 1.17, Paul lifts up this voice of praise. He says, Now to the King eternal, immortal, Invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And he says a little later in the same book, 1 Timothy 6.16, God alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. That's the God we worship. A God that cannot be seen. You say, how is it we can, I mean, how do we worship something that we cannot put a face or an image or something? And I don't know about you, but when I was younger, I often thought of God as a, a, an old man in a white outfit with a long white beard, glowing, blazing light. 
But even that becomes a form of idolatry because what I'm doing is I'm associating some form of an image to God who is in fact invisible. Uh, Louis Burkhoff, the theologian, put this way. He said, by ascribing spirituality to God, which we did last time, we also affirm that he has none of the properties belonging to matter, substance, stuff, and that he cannot be discerned by the bodily senses, close quote. In other words, God, because he's spirit, you cannot ascribe anything, hardness, solidity, stiffness, Length, width, breadth. You can't put any of those kind of properties into God because God is invisible. God is spirit. In fact, here's a, here's a get your head around a little bit. If you can possibly conceive of an existence where there is no time, space, or matter, which becomes, you, you may as well, you know, you used to get by some aspirin or some paracetamol and take a handful of them, you can try and think about that. But for every single thing that we can see, touch, taste, or feel, time, space, and matter, those four or three things, something has to create them. And if God is going to create time and space and matter, He has to be external to those three things. So it's absolutely essential for God to be immaterial, to be spirit, and to be invisible. God cannot himself occupy time and space and matter and then create it. Because in order to do that, he would have to create himself, and that becomes a, a, it's an impossibility. You cannot create yourself. That's why people, little kids say, where did God come from? The only accurate answer is you can say, God is. Yeah, but hang on, where did he come from? No, no, God is. He exists. There is no beginning and there is no ending. There is no starting point for God. God simply exists. God would be forced to create himself if he occupied time and space and matter, and he cannot. God is spirit. He is immaterial. He is invisible. But now we have a problem. Because if you're a wise student of the Old Testament, what are you going to come up with? All kinds of times when God appears. I see a couple of you starting to smile. You remember reading something and you saw it. And God appeared. For example, we call these, by the way, theophanies. So if you, people ask you tomorrow when you go to work, so what did you do last night? You say, well, I went to church and we considered the theophanies. And they'll think you're very smart. Well, what's a theophany, you would say to yourself? It's uh, God taking on a visible form to show or reveal something of himself to his people. For example, Genesis 18, God appears to Abraham to promise him Isaac's birth. In Genesis 32, God appeared to Jacob. It says there, uh, he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob. You remember the scene? Uh, Jacob is coming to meet um, his brother Esau. Thank you. And uh, he's coming up to this river and he puts all the flocks and herds across one side. And he goes to the other side and he can't sleep. Because he knows him and his brother have this great tension over the years. And he's stuck on one side of the river. And a man meets him there and he wrestles all through the night. At the end of him, this man, we know as God, says, Your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven or strived with God and with men and have prevailed. And Jacob asked him and said, Please tell me your name. How can I identify this one that I have struggled with all night long? And he said, Why is it you ask my name? And he blessed him, that's Jacob there, and Jacob named the place Peniel, for he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. So he saw something of God. God allowed himself to take on a form that Jacob could wrestle with. So you know he actually had matter as they were struggling back and forth and wrestling with their muscles and strength. And you know the story, right? Towards the end, Jacob's maybe getting the upper hand, and the angel reaches out and he just touches the socket of his hip, and it wrenches the, the sinews and the tendons in his hip, and Jacob walks with a limp for the rest of his days as a mark to him, you've wrestled with God and you have prevailed. He appeared, God appeared to Manoah, uh, that's Samson's mother and father, in Genesis, uh, Judges sorry, 13.21, it says, The angel of the Lord did not appear to Manoah or his wife again. And then Manoah knew that he was an angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, We will surely die, for we have seen God. And his wife said, Well, you know, we're going to have a kid, so I don't think God's going to kill us. So <laughs> we're fine, we're okay. But they had seen God, and they recognized that. God appeared to Isaiah. That beautiful, beautiful passage in Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah writes, I saw the Lord. 
sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, centuries later, John, the apostle, a disciple too, explains this as a Christophany, meaning a pre-incarnate, so before Jesus became in flesh, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ on the throne. He says in John 12, verses 40 and 41, that he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart. This is John quoting Isaiah's writing. And he says, he, he under, uh, sorry, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. And Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. And saying that, John is describing or ascribing that appearance of God that Isaiah saw to a Christophany. He saw Christ on the throne. Okay? Take your Bibles. Look over at Exodus 33. This is one of those scenes that I just loved to read when I was first saved. Uh, for some of you who don't know, in the, the, the denomination we were a part of when I was an early believer, we had communion services every Sunday morning, and they would go for an hour to an hour and a half each. And then we'd have a space, and we'd have a preaching service after that. And as a new Christian, I was just craving to know more about God. And I would find these incredible passages like this one in Isaiah 6 and Revelation 5 and just read over them to get something from them. And this is what uh, the story in uh, Exodus 33, and we'll read from verse 11 to verse 23. The Bible says, and it's what it's describing here, is Moses pitched a tent out away from the camp of the people of Israel. This is after the golden calf incident. And he would go out away from the camp of Israel, and all the Israelites would see Moses going up. And the Bible says they would stand in the doorway of the tent, and they would watch as Moses would go into the tent of meeting. And he and God, as the Bible says in the second would speak face to face as a man speaks with his friend. This is what he says. Exodus 33, beginning at verse 11, it says, Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man would not depart from the tent. And Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, Bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people." And he said, as God says, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. That is an incredible promise. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? The Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And then Moses goes for broke. I love it. He says, Moses said, Please show me your glory. That is an incredible question, a request. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Jump down to verse 6 of chapter 34. Actually, verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head to the earth and worshipped. That's an amazing scene. 
Literally, as God takes Moses and he puts him into a cleft of the rock and he puts his hand in front of him. And because God cannot be seen with the eyes, as God passes forth, his voice speaks and he proclaims and announces the attributes of God. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. I'm gracious, I'm merciful, I'm slow to anger, I'm abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He has to declare the attributes of God as he passes by. And, the, and D.A. Carson did a great thing on this. And he said that as God was saying this, it's like intoning, like ringing the words out. And they would have filled that space and boomed out as he passed by. And the glory of God was there. You say, hang on. God is invisible. He can't, we can't see him. And what I was, I, was, I was sitting there thinking about this, going, how is it possible? And then it dawned on me. He said, let me see your glory. And what we find in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, is this. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3. Look what it says. Take your Bibles. Flip it over. It says this in the verse, couple of verses of Hebrews chapter 1. It says, long ago... At many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, and through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God. Catch that? He, Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God. I thought to myself, I wonder... I'm just speculating, but just think. See, Moses asked to see God's glory. And here in the New Testament, the writer of Hebrews says, He is the glory of God, speaking of Christ. So I'm wondering if perhaps what Moses was able to see was Christ in that pre-incarnate glory, kind of like Mo, uh, the three disciples up on top of the mountain and Moses and Elijah there, and the, and the heavens are kind of pulled back and the glory of Christ covers him for a few moments and Peter and James and John are standing there, blazed at this light of the glory of Christ. He saw the glory of God. God cannot be seen at all. God is invisible, but there are some, there was some outward form or manifestation of God which was able to be seen by men, at least in part. God's total essence will never be able to be seen by us, but God still, in marvelous grace, He still shows and reveals something of Himself to us through visible, created things. If we are to think of God, and we must, That is what God has called us to do, to think on Him, to think deeply about Him, to comprehend Him, that that thoughts might feed the worship of our hearts and we lift up our hearts to worship to God because of who He is. God understands that we cannot comprehend the invisible. And He gives us hundreds of different analogies taken from human lives or from created world that we might understand something of who God is. Even in Revelation it talks about, I saw on the throne, and his, his appearance was like Sardius and all those different brilliant stones. That doesn't mean he was actually Sardius. It just means that the image was something like that. It was a, some way for John to express in writing for us to understand something of what God was like. In Genesis 1.27, God created man in his own image. Now you look at you and I, look at Con and go... That's not God. He's a great guy and everything, but that's not God. But in the image Khan's created in, especially in that regenerated, made right with God image, there's something of God in Khan. We can comprehend something. We look at uh, also the heavens atone the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. It is the heavens, the idea of telling of the glory, it means that they are writing out the glory of God, describing and giving account. And here's a caution. When you walk outside, and it's a beautiful clear night tonight, and you look up at the sky, don't look up and go, wow, the glory of God. Because that's not what it is. The skies are telling the glory of God. Meaning what? Meaning as you look at them and you look at the wonder of the stars and the magnitude of like, what's it called? Uh, Canis Majoris, the big dog. That's what it literally means in Latin. It's the biggest star you know, that they've found so far. It's a quadrillion times the size of our sun out there. That's how big it is. It gives you something of the scope of the magnitude of God's creative ability. When you look up, don't go, oh, look, the glory of God. Look up and go, look at what the glory of God is like. 
It's something so magnificent and so brilliant. The human mind and the human eye can only penetrate so far into space, but with radio telescopes and all these other creations man's come up with, we can see further and further and further. And what staggers my mind is the guys who create these things and build them and look through them for hours on end can still so, I don't see God up there. It's like, you have to be blind. Not that he's up there. But all that you're seeing is shouting out in ever bigger language, in ever more detailed terms, this is what God is like. But you know what? We can go through all those different things and think about all the different descriptions and analogies of God in the New Testament, but a much greater, a much more better, a perfect visible manifestation of God than the Old Testament is found, of course, in the person of Christ himself. All the attributes of God, and we can spend hours looking at them. That's a great study, but we'll only truly know God as we know Jesus Christ. Ultimately, God is known only through Christ. The Old Testament promises and describes Him. The Gospels unveil and reveal Him. The epistles explain and apply His work, and the revelation promises the conclusion of that work. John contrasts the fact that no one has ever seen God with the fact that God's only Son has made Him known. John 1.18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, that means in intimate relationship with God the Father, He has explained Him. John 14, verse 9, Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you? You have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? It's the one great argument, among many, sorry, against the Jehovah's Witness and some of their ideas is that Jesus said, He who has seen me has seen the Father. Go back to Colossians where we started. Colossians 1.15. Colossians 1.15, he says, great phrase here, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now the word for image has two possible nuances in Greek, and they actually both apply in here. The first one is the idea of representative, right? So uh, let's say Kumar is going to buy a house. And he has all the money, and he has somebody there who wants to sell a house. He takes that guy, and he gives him the money, and he says, you know what? He says, maybe to Cameron, Cameron, I'm going to give you the money, and I'm going to give you my authority to buy the house and sign the deal in my name. Cameron goes over to meet the guy with the house, and then he says, I, I thought Kumar was coming. And Cameron says, no, I represent Kumar. I come in the authority of Kumar. In fact, when Kumar, when I speak, it's Kumar's voice you're hearing. And when I write the signature and I sign the documents and I agree to buy the house for $12.99, and, and you can imagine it's Kumar, sign the deed. It's Kumar. I'm acting as a representative. And here's the point. Christ is the representative of God. Christ represents God to us. Christ acts for God. He speaks for God. As a high priest, he mediates between God and us. But there is something else in that word image that's so powerful. The idea doesn't just mean representative, it also means manifestation, display, real presence. Christ is the image of the invisible God. He is the actual, real presence of God to us. He is the invisible God incarnate into visible humanity. So the invisible God took on a visible humanity. So when we look at Jesus, He still has hair and flesh and teeth, bones, all humanity like we do. And we'll look into His eyes and we'll see the eyes of a man. We'll look at the scars and the nails of His hands and His feet and the side with His ear went, all that stuff. We'll see the puncture wounds where the, the thorns pierced His brow. We'll look and see a man, but incarnate in that man is the invisible God. He is the image of the invisible God. The writer of Hebrews said that Jesus is, in 1 verse 3, He's the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of His nature. So when we see Christ, we're seeing the absolute perfections of God in a man. And that, if that doesn't stagger your mind and make you sit down and stay speechless for half an hour like I think Ezekiel did one time, I don't know what will. 
God invisible, incomprehensible, immaterial. God who is absolutely holy and absolutely just. God who is omnipotent and omniscient and omnipresent and all those other omnis. This God in the incarnate in flesh and blood that we might see Him and we might relate to Him and He might relate to us, that He might represent us to the Father. James Montgomery Boyce said it like this. He said, Truth is centered in the Lord Jesus Christ as seen in the Bible. There the invisible God is made visible. The inscrutable is made knowable. The eternal God disclosed in space and time. Do I look to Jesus in order to know God? Do I think of God's attributes by what Jesus shows me of them? If not, I am worshipping an image of God, albeit an image of my own devising. But if I look to Christ, then I can know that I am worshipping the true God as he has revealed him. Close quote. Something else to keep in mind here in all of this. Will we be able to see God when we get to heaven? And something I've often thought about, especially my head, I wonder what that means. But I think the reality is because, as we read in Colossians 1, that all the fullness of God is pleased to dwell in Christ, that we will be in the presence of the Father, but we'll be able to see Christ. We'll be able to reach out our hands, and I can't imagine this, but just touch his arm. Because he's got an arm just like I got one. Glorified and wonderful and beautiful and all the rest of it, but we'll be able to touch him. You ought to stand beside him and talk to him and look deep into his eyes. There'll be blazes of fires that the Bible describes him in Revelation in all of his glory. It's not like looking at Khan. It's something far and far greater than that. The glory of Christ. But I don't think we'll actually be able to see the Father. Now, you might be able to prove me wrong on that. But from what I can see in Scripture, that God who is invisible has made Christ the image of the invisible God. And in Christ, all the perfections of God are there. All the fullness of deity is clothed in, or poured into Christ. The Bible does say, though, in a couple of pages, that we will see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, Jesus said, for they shall see God. I think to myself, the only answer I can give that is we will see Christ in all of his fullness of his glory as he is in heaven. 1 John 3 verse 2, Beloved, now we are the children of God and has not yet appeared as what we will be. But we know that when, we, when he appears, sorry, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. That's the other hope we have, isn't it? That this body, this broken down, failing, creaking, groaning old body with failing eyesight and, and muscles that don't work the way they're supposed to and bones that are shortened or shortening and all the rest of the problems and the physical ailments that we struggle with when we see Christ. The hope we have is that all that work in us will be finished and we will be like him and we'll see him as he is. And what I really wanted to get to tonight... In all of this, I'm going in a target. When we realize that God is the perfection of all that we long for or all that we desire, everything in this world loses its tarnish. You see, you weren't created to be a carpenter or a doctor or a businessman. You weren't created to love golf as much as golf is a great game or love footy. My condolences to all the calling one supporters. You weren't created for those things. And you know, the problem for us is that we're so easily satisfied by the things that we can see. We think that this world is all it has. We were created for so much more than what we can see and taste and hear and touch. We were created for God. We were created to know God, to savor God, to be in His presence and enjoy that immense person. The problem for us is C.S. Lewis said it like this. He said that um, we are far too easily satisfied. He described like this. He said a little, little kid goes with his family to the beach. And it comes out the back of the house and there's a house there and there's a bit of a fence and there's a bit of a yard and the yard's kind of rough and dirt and a bit of sand here and there and it pours rain one day. And this little kid goes out in the back of the rain and he finds a puddle about this big. 
And he gets down on his hands and knees in the puddle and he starts to scoop up the mud and he's making mud pies with the mud. And he's just having the time of his life splashing around in the mud, making a huge mess, much to his mother's disgust and dismay, knowing she's going to wash the clothes. But he's having a tremendous time playing in a puddle, making mud pies, almost oblivious to the fact that behind that fence sits the Pacific Ocean. And here he is playing with the trivial and the tiny His little tiny heart has chosen to be satisfied in something so small he can put his finger down and plumb the depths of that puddle. And out there is an ocean that's two two miles deep at its deepest point, something like that. That's what we're like. When we let all the stuff of this world soak up our minds and become the object of what we're focusing on, we are trading out what God has designed us for for something so much less. God who is spirit is to be worshipped in spirit and in truth. It doesn't say anything about physicality there. God who is invisible does not consist of matter. God who is invisible is exceedingly above and beyond all that matter, time, and space can convey. God has designed us to be enraptured and enthralled in Him. Reference to John Piper here. You can, if you know John Piper, you can hear his voice coming through all this. But listen, God has created us to be in the image of God. God created us for himself. God created us to enjoy his pleasures at his right hand. Take as our closing verse, Psalm 16. Take your Bibles and just flip over to the Psalms. And Psalm 16, this beautiful little passage in here. Psalm 16. Listen to what he says. Now he's, he's describing in part Christ and the fact that Christ went to the grave. But listen to his words in verse 9. He says, Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You made known to me the life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You know what he's saying? My heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. In what? In God. In all of who God is. All the perfections of God. In other words, he's longing for that day when he stands face to face to God and he can soak up and see all that God is and savor and delight. And he knows it will be so much more than what this world can offer him. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. There is something massively wrong, brothers and sisters, when our Christianity becomes devoid of joy. In fact, I would argue that if your Christianity is devoid of joy, there is no Christianity in place. Because the very design of God is to enrapture us with joy unspeakable. So that our hearts are absolutely flowing over with joy and delight and worship. I'm not talking about some charismatic craziness. I'm talking about a heart that's absolutely in love and so exuberant with joy as it dwells in God's presence. And I have, I'm not going to claim to have gotten anywhere near that, but there have been a few times in my life in prayer, in quiet before the Lord, where my soul has just soared upwards. I don't mean anything bizarre or weird. I just mean there is a joy that is undescribable as you savor that presence of God one-on-one and there is that intimate fellowship. And this is what David is writing about as he writes these words. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. What's the connection to the invisible God? The connection is that nothing of time and space and matter can meet or even come close to that. God who is immaterial and invisible and spirit has that so much far removed from all of this. And he's designed us to live in this world for a time. And when time gives way to eternity and we see God face to face, and as much as we can see God face to face in the person of Christ, when we see him there, 
And that enrapturing, that incredible experience of joy in the presence of God, this world will fly away. But the challenge for all of us, and it doesn't matter who you are or where you're at, the challenge for all of us is what are we doing about time, space, and matter today? How much time are we investing in the junk as for a moment? Because 1% of eternity which is an infinite time span, all the stuff you did here will be for nothing. Am I saying you should abandon your responsibilities? No, of course not. Am I saying you should stop doing, stop working and just spend your time sitting in a corner contemplating the scriptures on your navel and, and enjoying God like that? No, you can't. God designed you and put you here with a purpose. One of them is to work and witness and all the rest of it. But brothers and sisters, let's open our grasp of our hands on the stuff that we are so desperately grasping for to hang on to as if it's somehow going to satisfy our souls, because it won't. You look at the lives of the filthy rich. We were, uh, last night we were sitting there channel, channel surfing, looking for something to watch, and there's, of course, nothing on worth watching. And we came across um, AFI, American Film Institute, uh, tribute to George Clooney. And here's a guy who invited 13 of his close friends around to the house for dinner. And as a closing gift, just as a takeaway package, just to say thanks for the evening, he gave each of them a suitcase. And inside the suitcase was $1 million in cash. The, the 14th closest friend is still really mad at him because he didn't get invited, but he's got all money. He can give it away. He didn't care. It's lost all sense to him in that sense. He just hands a suitcase, $13 million, more money than you and I will see most of our lifetimes. He hands it away. You know why? Because it won't satisfy. Look at the lives and the lifestyles of the really rich and the really famous. Look at their eyes. They're either wild or vacant. There's, it's just meaningless. Numbers and money and possession and cars and things just become absolutely meaningless. But you look at the lives of the saints, some of the great men of God who have suffered terrible things for their life with Christ. And you read their writings and you see how their souls just soared upwards to heaven. Because they're absolutely delighting in the things that were not of time and space and matter. Our God is an invisible God. Don't just think of you can't see him. Think of external to time and space and matter. And he longs to be worshipped and savored and enjoyed in a form that goes beyond time and space and matter. What an amazing God we have. Amen. Would you stand with me? We're going to close in prayer. And uh, there is a pile of pizzas that Heather's got in the oven heating up so we can have some, some uh, fellowship and some food too. In other words, don't run away. Loving Father, we come before you again. And Father, just considering some of those verses, considering that story that Moses penned, where he, on top of a mountain, was set into a cleft of a rock. And you came and stood beside him. You covered him with your hand. And as you passed by, the invisible God passing in front of the man's eyes you intoned and pronounced those attributes of yourself that he with his ears could hear that God is gracious, God is merciful, God is compassionate. The Lord, the Lord God. And Father, we think about that other psalm that we read and, and referred to much earlier. Be still and know that I am God. Father, help us this week to stop to step back from the rat race that we occupy for, it seems like, a never-ending cycle. To pull back, to take some time to be quiet, to be silent and to be still. And to know that God is. That you are God. That everything that is happening to us and happening around us is part of your master plan. That you have designed us and equipped us and called us to yourself for so much more than what's in front of us in this world. Father, help us 
to loosen our grasp on the stuff of the world, to invest our time, our minds, our hearts, our passions, our zeals, our focus into the things that are for eternity, to focus and savor and delight in you, to be enraptured and enthralled with who you are. Father, we pray, open our eyes that we would see wonderful things in your word that describe you. Father, open our eyes as we walk around in this creation that you have given to us and open our eyes and our ears to hear as it writes and describes of a God most glorious, a God most holy, a God who is worthy to be praised, a God who is worthy to spend time with, to learn from, to savor, to joy, to rejoice in, to rejoice over. Father, help us, like Jesus said, to be storing up treasures in heaven, that we might be there with God, with you, loving you and savoring every moment of your presence. Father, one of the sisters in this church used a phrase in a Bible study a few weeks ago, soaking in the presence of God. Father, help us this week with our Bibles open, on our faces before you to soak in your presence And enjoy those moments when our soul soars into your presence and savors and delights a little in God. Father, we ask you these things. We cry out to you, O God, for this church again. Father, we pray that you would do a great work in this church. Father, there's there's moments in my human weakness when I feel awkward and keep on praying and keep on asking. But Father, I am absolutely convinced that your desire for this church is there would be a revival here, a real, genuine, biblical, Holy Spirit revival. Men and women confessing sin, men and women restoring broken relationships, men and women on their faces before God with a single-hearted desire to worship and love and know the one true God of the Bible. Father, I call out, I cry out to you again, O God, this night, bring revival. Work in this church, O God. Father, save those who are lost and lift the gaze of those who know you to look full in the face of Christ and be so changed that love would flow one from the other. Father, we plead with you for these things. We ask, O God, for them again in Jesus' name because he alone deserves the answer. We ask in Christ's name all these things. Father, we give you thanks for our fellowship this day. Father, thank you for a good day of worship. May we each take the flavor of this worship with us through the week that's ahead. Father, for those in this room that don't know you, Father, I cry out to you, I plead with you, O God, that the Spirit of God would give them no rest but constantly point out to them the beauty and the glory of Christ, that they might feast on Him, see their sin, cry out for a Savior, and know the joy and the peace that only You can give. Father, we ask You these things, and we plead for them in Jesus' name. Amen.